Hello and welcome into BTN's Take 10 Podcast. This is Alex Rue, BTN.com. And throughout basketball season, we've done some episodes with the Buckets Breakdown label of title. This one we'll call a Bracket Breakdown because we bring in Brad Evans of Yahoo Sports. He is a successful bracketologist, fantasy football guy as well, but we had him on to talk some brackets and just kind of make sense of the madness that we saw throughout the first weekend of the NCAA tournament. And he's kind of a perfect guy to have on because he's got a very unique style. He's loud. He's energetic. He puts uh, games into a historical context, literally. Like, he'll bring in history lessons because he was a former history teacher before he got into sports media. So definitely a unique voice, and I'm glad we got him on to talk NCAA tournament because there's a lot to talk about this past weekend. If you're listening to this show, don't have to tell you that because it was insane there were upsets there were buzzer beaters uh, unbelievable comebacks pretty much everything you want as a basketball fan and you know the saying kind of goes like every year people say oh this is the craziest tournament ever this is the craziest first weekend ever i think this year it actually applies that this was the craziest first weekend any of us have ever seen in the ncaa tournament so we get to all of that with brad evans of yahoo and uh, he breaks it down like no one else can so We'll get to that discussion with Brad in just a moment here, and we'll get right to it and not waste much more of your time. Um, obviously, we'll talk a lot about Purdue and Michigan because they're two Big Ten teams still alive. We'll kind of diagnose what went wrong with Michigan State as well. And we talk a lot about uh, non-Big Ten teams because there's a lot of storylines that captivated the entire country that um, definitely deserve to be talked about on this podcast, even though... This is a BTN podcast. There's a lot more non-Big Ten talk than usual in this podcast just because you know, a lot of these games and storylines demand our uh, attention and, and are definitely relevant in the larger picture as we kind of break down the remaining Big Ten teams' paths to the Final Four, Purdue, and Michigan. So we'll do all that with Brad. And a couple of reminders before we get to him. First off, please continue uh, to listen to the show. And if you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, Google Play, and Podbean. So if you're listening on SoundCloud right now, head on over to those podcasting platforms and subscribe. If you haven't done so already, please leave a review, rate the show if you like it, and um, you know, give us the, the like, the bump, the thumbs up, whatever the platform host uh, has for you if, if you like the show. If you don't like it, then don't bother because I don't want my rating getting dragged down. Um, one more reminder before we get to Mr. Evans. Please uh, continue to take advantage of the coupon code on the btn.com online store. If you go on btn.com, there's a tab where you can go to the shop and shop for Big Ten gear, merchandise, swag, memorabilia, whatever you want. There's some tournament gear in there, Big Ten tournament champs if you're a Michigan fan. And there will be gear going forward, especially if a Big Ten team makes it to Final Four championship game or wins it all gear can be found on the btn.com online store and that coupon code is take 10 capital t-a-k-e the number one and zero and that take 10 coupon code will let you take 10 percent off your order at the btn.com online store so capital t-a-k-e one zero all right those reminders out of the way it's time to bring the noise bring in yahoo noise himself brad evans and that interview starts right now 
I'm very pleased to be joined by an award-winning Yahoo Sports fantasy football writer. He's also a bracketologist and the CEO of hashtag Team Huevos. You can follow him on Twitter at Yahoo Noise. That introduction, it is Brad Evans. Brad, how you doing, sir? That is a stirring introduction, and I greatly appreciate it. Uh, I am I'm doing swell. My bracket is uh, is still needing a medic. Uh, it's uh, it's bleeding profusely right now, but uh, I have a pulse thanks to the Michigan Wolverines and more specifically Jordan Poole and his heroics. Yeah, it's all good, Brad. I think most of America and most of everyone who filled out a bracket is right along there with you. I'm kind of I'm kind of in the same boat. Like I have the uh, ESPN app, and it says I'm in the 90th percentile percentile or something like that. But going forward, I'm going to fall because my title winner Michigan State is out, my runner-up Arizona is out. I think Purdue is my only remaining Final Four pick still alive, so it's it's rough going right now. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's a tough one to swallow for sure. But still, you can boast that you're in the you know the top ten percent of of the ESPN world. So you might as well get that out there to the social media universe uh, before it all comes crashing down. I'm gonna parade that around as long as I can. Uh, I think I have a couple more days until, like you said, it all crumbles. Uh, Brad, I want to get into before we get into the bracketology and hoops talk i'm interested because when i was reading your bio and obviously we're both central illinois guys so Mm -hmm. i'm uh, familiar with your work But when i was getting deeper into your bio i did not realize that you were not always in sports media in fact you were a, a, a teacher and you did not have a sports media upbringing in school so i wanted you to get into your background a little bit First off, what did you do before uh, becoming a sports media personality, and how did you eventually get into this realm? Yeah, I was a military brat, kind of moved around all over the place. Um, You know, I uh, was born in California, lived for a time until the sixth grade in San Antonio, Texas. Then my dad retired from the Air Force um, and decided to retire in Champaign, Illinois, of all places. So uh, my mom was from there. My dad was from uh, the northern suburbs of Chicago, Libertyville, Mundelein area. And uh, so, you know, when I moved uh, to Champaign, the seventh grade, grew up there, uh, went to Centennial High School. I uh, was there when Carvel Ammons uh, was lighting up scoreboards uh, before he, you know, moved on to Northwestern, eventually to the University of Illinois, and then finished his career with the University of Maine, of all places. Um, and then, you know, I started as a teacher. Uh, I, you know, I went to U of I, uh, got a history degree there, secondary education uh, minor as well, and then I did some postgraduate work through Mississippi State while I was an educator in Champaign, uh, and I got a, an advanced degree in geoscience with an emphasis in meteorology. So I wanted to be kind of like a Jim Cantori, Chase Tornadoes, weather nerd, or at least teach it uh, in some capacity, uh, you know, down the road, and then fantasy intervenes, and I stumbled across a site um Actually, it was an article written by Matthew Barry, now of ESPN fame, um, when he was working at Roto World and he was a struggling uh, Hollywood scriptwriter because he wrote arguably the worst Crocodile Dundee movie ever made. And, and Matthew <laughs> will tell you that uh, was definitely the case, nominated for multiple Razzies, so quite an accomplishment in his world. And uh, he had started a Yahoo group site, which, of course, no longer exists, and created this community, which eventually blossomed into TalentedMrRoto.com. And it was just a culmination of some great fantasy minds like myself and Andy Behrens, uh, Pierre Beckways now, a senior editor at ESPN, uh, Christopher Harris, who's at ESPN doing his own podcast now, 
and a slew of other people that were involved in this community. And I did that uh, for you know a couple of years while I was still teaching. Uh, I was a teacher at an at-risk alternative high school called the Ready Program in Champaign. Uh, I did that for six years until this exploded, and then I left teaching and uh, got a gig at Yahoo, thanks to Brandon Funston, who interviewed me and didn't think that was too much of a jackass. So here I am today. So you've built a persona, a an image, and, and as far as I can tell, it's all legitimate of you being this you know loud, boisterous, energetic guy. Was that your teaching style as well when you were teaching the at-risk youth of Champaign-Urbana? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, uh, I was, <laughs> I was rather unconventional, I guess you could put it. Um, you know, my teaching style. I, I like to talk a lot, as you can tell. I'm, I'm rather loquacious, and uh, I, I'm a person who likes to tell stories. And you know, that's really kind of ingrained in, into who I am. It's part of my DNA. And so, as a as a history teacher, I always tell like fun stories in history, and and uh, you know a, a lot of interesting takes and spins that you know would try to be entertaining to that time that type of audience because it's a tough audience. You don't know if uh, your group of kids are going to show up that day because it went out and did some you know unfortunate activities the night before. Uh, you know, you're just trying to get them on the straight and narrow to get them prepared to return potentially. Uh, to a public education uh, format, you know, conventional setting. So uh, it, it was a tough uh, gig, but yeah, I mean, I was loud, I was boisterous, uh, I always injected humor, and, you know, I would have a lot of debates on, you know, there, and a lot of hot topics uh, that were going on, you know, at that moment in time to try to engage the student as best uh, as, you know, as possible. And again, try to get them prepared not only for maybe returning to uh, you know, a conventional high school, but also preparing them for life and society overall. Sure, and that personality serves you well now because you've, for a while now, had your own show. You created your own, I believe, fantasy football show, and it's it's on it's been on Fox Sports uh, regional networks, and and you've been seen by millions of people. But you're kind of ahead of the curve in that regard, kind of creating your own show that doesn't have to be all that polished and and just kind of like you said, unconventional. Unconventional. So how did that come about, and did you realize that that was kind of where this medium w- was headed? Yeah, so I, you know, I've been doing uh, fantasy football live for a number of years on Yahoo Sports, and we were actually, uh, you know, we, we got out in front of the curve. We kind of set the standard uh, in that regard. We were the first ever, I believe, live sports show on the Internet. Uh, and I was actually doing uh, episodes of that initially out of WILL in Champaign, Illinois, there you right go. There yeah, right there, U of I's campus. Um, so the you know the very birth of Fantasy Football Live, uh, you know, part of it's tied to that specific studio. So you know that show success, it's just grown by leaps and bounds over the years. And that that's a Sunday morning show when you have the most engaged, plugged-in audience and people just voracious for information, trying to get you know the last uh, sit-start questions in before setting their lineups uh, for that slate of games on Sunday. And, uh, you know, I said, I think there's an appetite beyond just Sundays because, you know, we're always talking about fantasy throughout the entire week. Our content on Yahoo Sports clicks like crazy. So I'm like, you know, why not do a, a, a weekday show? So, you know, I had this concept, uh, you know, at the back of my brain after watching an episode of PTI on ESPN probably six, seven years ago. And I'm like, this is perfect for fantasy. It, it's two personalities screaming and yelling at each other about the hot topics of the day. I mean, that's what fantasy is all about. You know, whether you like or dislike embrace debate. 
that is the core of the fantasy football playing audience. So uh, when I moved to Denver, I was in Champaign, moved to Phoenix, lived there for a while, and eventually moved to Denver, Colorado, because I got tired of my face melting in the summertime uh, due to the uh, Sonoran Desert heat. And, uh, you know, I, I made a pitch uh, to Altitude TV uh, about three and a half years ago. Uh, they they bought into it, hook, line, and sinker, and they said, you know, we're not going to pay you much, but we can get this off the ground. I said, I, I just want the chance, and the show exploded. And, you know, we got picked up for syndication last year in Fox Sports Regionals in our second season, and, uh, you know, I think the sky's the limit, and it is. It is. It's loose. It's laid back, but it's highly informational. I call it infotainment. We don't take ourselves too seriously, but we also, you know, we're fantasy players at the core, and we're, we're trying to provide, you know, that energy, that passion, that vibrancy of fantasy, while also giving you the information you need to succeed in making those tough lineup decisions. So I'm really proud of it, and we've been nominated for a slew of awards, and the show just continues to grow. Yeah, I don't have to tell you this, but fantasy football is so similar to March Madness, and you're you're also a bracketologist, obviously. So, when did you kind of move into the bracketology game? How did that happen? Was it just kind of a natural transition because of the similarities between the fan engagement and, and the picking and the betting and all that? Well, growing up in Champaign, um, you know, obviously it was. Uh, it- fully immersed in the University of Illinois and, and Big Ten basketball and, and loved it when, you know, Illinois was actually good at basketball uh, and, uh, you know, thoroughly enjoyed it. And it, it really is a passion play for me. So going back to my town to MrRoto.com days, so, you know, preceding my Yahoo days, uh, I used to do full draft kits for, uh, you know, tourney pick'em games, uh, you know, your bracket games uh, through town to Mr. Roto. I mean, extensive scouting reports. I would do uh, radio, which was, you know, really before podcasting, just internet radio, talking about the brackets. Uh, I loved it. And I've always been extraordinarily passionate about college basketball for years. So when I came on to Yahoo as a fantasy football guy, I, you know, immediately tried to, to pin myself as well as a college basketball guru. And, uh, we, you know, we acquire rivals. There's a little bit of a battle there with some of the rivals guys, but eventually they gave me a shot and I just ran with it and became the full-time bracketologist at Yahoo, I think about 2007. Um, so I've been doing this uh, for over 10 years, uh, the bracketology gig and I have had a, a lot of success in it. Uh, you know, this year, I uh, had one of my most, actually it was my most accurate year ever doing it. I got 67 to 68, but more importantly, it doesn't matter how many teams out of the 68 you actually predict because over half the field is automatic burst anyway. It's where you seed them. And uh, I was 43 out of 68 exactly on the seed line and 65 out of 68 within one seed line. So uh, I actually got inside the mind of the selection committee and read it pretty well, the field and how it was vetted this year. So, yeah, I love it, man. Uh, it's And it fits perfectly with the seasons, right? Because when the fantasy football regular season ends, then I purge all of that and dive headfirst into college basketball and go back and scout film. And um, and that's basically the gig for me. So uh, that's what I've been doing now for, again, the better part of 10 years of Yahoo Sports. Not a bad gig at all. So have you on to talk March Madness, and I'm glad I have your chaotic voice on here to help make sense of the chaos we saw this past weekend. So, Brad, tell me, what the hell just happened this past weekend? What, what did we see? <laughs> I, I wish you could tell me because I don't think anybody has any answers. I, I, I mean, first and foremost, we, we kind of, if you read the tea leaves, 
even early on in the college basketball season, everybody realized there wasn't a, a truly dominant team. And you saw so much turnover at the top of the polls, uh, the popularity polls, I like to call them, uh, throughout the entire season. There's just a tremendous amount of equality and parity that exists. And, and the depth of the high major conferences as well, I mean, you look at the Big 12, uh, getting as many teams as it did in the ACC, the SEC, down here for the Big Ten because the bottom half of, uh, of the league was, uh, was shoddy at best. And, uh, you know, it, it wasn't as, as deep in terms of the talent pool compared to some of the other high major conferences out there. But, you know, that's just the day and age that we live in, you know, with the, the one and done playing a factor. Uh, you have an exodus in talent, uh, that, you know, uh, transfers, uh, every single year. Uh, you're going to have a lot of turnover, and and that adds into the parity, and that's what you're seeing right now in the landscape of college basketball, and that's why it's been such a wild and wacky and truly mad month of March. Yeah, I mean, between UMBC knocking off Virginia, the Loyola story is great, Nevada with their insane comebacks, Syracuse in the the, uh, Sweet 16, it's been nuts, but first question uh, for you specifically can you confirm that it's not you running that UMBC Twitter account? Because I've seen some similarities between you and Yahoo Noise, or between Yahoo Noise and that UMBC Retrievers account. Oh man, they were trolling fools like crazy. I feel bad for Seth Davis because uh, he was getting, he took the, uh, the worst he, of it. Oh man, he was getting uh, you know levied with uh, uppercut after uppercut. It was uh, it was pretty ugly for uh, for Seth there for a while. But uh, you know, credit to UMBC. You know, when the, when the star is shining on, you really got to capture the moment. And in this day and age of social media, how do you continue to capture that over a short time frame? And uh, whoever is running the account, that guy is just genius. So they did a, just a wonderful job uh, really feeding the social media beast and, and adding a twist of humor in there as well. You know how you hire the coach away, the UMBC coach is probably going to get a new job. they got to hire that social media director or coordinator. He's got to move up to, to some high D1 job now. Oh, totally. Yeah, heck, uh, he should overtake, like, the NFL. <laughs> hey, uh, the NFL, they, they're so pretentious and Humorless. serious. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and that guy would be a breath of fresh air. It's exactly what the league needs. Exactly. So let's get into that, that major upset, UMBC over Virginia. What happened to Virginia? Did their system just totally fail on them, and then before they realized it or could do anything about it, it was too late? Is that system even viable in, in March Madness, or was it just a one-off? Well, I think Coach Otto, what, uh, you know, he was looking at there was basically, look, if you go back and see the games in which Virginia Tech was, or excuse me, Virginia wasn't successful, and you go back most recently to the Virginia Tech game, and what did Virginia Tech do well in that game? Now, they won by the slimmest of margins in overtime, but it was in Charlottesville. They just shot lights out from three. And with UNBC, that's kind of their M.O. Um, you know, the, the, their identity is just uh, chucking it from, from distance and hoping it splashes on a routine basis. And they were very good in that capacity. In the AM East, it's the reason why they got uh, into the tournament because of a long-distance uh, bomb dropped uh, by Jarius Lyles on Vermont's home floor. And, and it played, and it worked to a T. So the game plan strategically was perfect. And they executed it flawlessly. And I, I think, too, Virginia was still reeling a little bit from the loss of DeAndre Hunter. You know, sixth man of the year in the ACC, a guy that was contributing regularly 10 to 12 points per game, uh, contributing regularly from outside. His length and athleticism at six foot seven as well, also a cog on defense within that pack line system. So losing him and the UMBC just coming out and shoot the ball so well, uh, it snowballed quickly. 
for Virginia, and they were shell shocked. And I, you know, I was yelling at my wife. I'm like, "You better turn the TV on. You're gonna witness history." And she's like, "Oh, there's still ten minutes left. You're crazy. Virginia's gonna come back." And I said, "If this game gets, uh, you know, under seven minutes, and it's a double digit lead still for the Retrievers, game set match because Virginia is not constructed to make these stirring, you know, come from behind victories like a Nevada did against Cincinnati." Yeah, and and. They moved on and had their moment in the limelight only to fall to Bruce Weber and K-State. But one team that is moving on and I think now has fully assumed the role of lovable underdog is Loyola and Sister Jean yeah. and, and Chicago's sweetheart team now. So besides the fortuitous shots they've hit in the clutchest of clutch moments and the favorable role they got in their win over Tennessee, how has Loyola been able to be so successful and win these first two games of the tournament? Well, this team has all the ingredients needed to make a deep run in March. And I actually said this on our Tony Bracket live show I did with the great Stephen Bardo. Of course, it works at Big Ten Network. My guy. And, uh, yeah, flying along a uh, legend as well. Stephen, one of my closest friends and, and allies in this business. And, uh, yeah, we were breaking it down. And, and Pat Forty, uh, of course, uh, of Yahoo fame, uh, the guy that previously worked at ESPN, he's done some stuff on BTN as well over the years. Yep. Um, you know, we, we were all in agreement. Peter Thamel, uh, Jimmy Patsos, uh, who was an assistant at Maryland for a number of years under Gary Williams and now the head coach at Siena College. We unanimously agreed that Loyola was going to be the Cinderella story of this NCAA tournament. Now, of course, they got, uh, undermined by UNBC, uh, but, uh, this is a team that had all the necessary characteristics to win not only a game, but multiple games because, A, they defend their tails off. Uh, they were top 25 in adjusted defensive efficiency entering the big dance. Number two, it's a team that shoots the ball extraordinarily well from three, 40% collectively entering the postseason from three. Clayton Custer by himself shooting close to 46%. And number three, one of the best teams in terms of assists to field goals made. So when you're passing the ball well, you're getting back and setting your defensive alignment and you're restrictive in terms of challenging shots, uh, putting ball to the basket for the opposition, and you shoot the three well, it just checks all these boxes. And they got a pretty good draw, too. It's not like Miami was the most explosive offense. Tennessee, I thought, would give them some problems because of the athleticism uh, and some of the link there, particularly Admiral Schofield and his ability to beat you inside and out, uh, and Williams as well, Grant Williams. But they've overcome. And, you know, the holy dagger plunged by... Uh, Dante Ingram against Miami, the holy roller as it fell through the cylinder for Clayton Custer. You know, maybe it's divine intervention, but I think a lot of it has to do with great coaching by Porter Moser and also the fact that this team just has the necessary ingredients to pull it all together at the right time. Yeah, and I mentioned how rough a shape my bracket looks going forward, but Nevada and Loyola is actually one Sweet 16 matchup that I predicted correctly, and that's partly because... My guy, uh, Jordan Caroline, another Champagne guy, yeah. uh, my former high school teammate, is a star, one of the stars on that Nevada team. And I'd watched him a little bit just the last couple of years. And there was something about him that, as we're seeing now, is kind of unique. They don't give up. They're relentless. They play a really, it's cliche to say, but a gritty style of basketball. And last year they had a comeback. They were down 25 against New Mexico down 14 in the last like one minute and eight seconds, and they still came back and won that game. So they have a history of doing this, and we've seen it in the tournament. They've come back twice. 
and uh, against all odds in, in that game against um, in the round of 32 game, we're able to come back and win. So what is it about this Nevada squad that doesn't let them die? They kind of got a, a rage, rage against the dying of the light thing going on. Well, I mean, look, it's a reflection of uh, Eric Musselman, their head coach, right? Uh, I mean, he's short, uh, he's, he's skinny, he's uh, very, uh, I would say, slippery-chested as well, as we saw. <laughs> he's not afraid <laughs> you know, to take the shirt off. off. Yeah, rip it off his shirt as the party ensued in that historic comeback against uh, Cincinnati. And, and I, I actually worked with uh, his wife at Yahoo for a couple of years, Danielle Sargent, uh, Danielle Musselman as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I've known uh, the family for a long time. And, and Eric is just, uh, he's relentless. Uh, he's a ball of energy. And this team really feeds off of that mentality uh, and that uh, excitement that he exudes on the sidelines. And they don't quit. And what's remarkable about uh, that comeback against Cincinnati, you know, you're down 22 with 11 minutes to go. And uh, I saw there were some, um, you know, some analysts out there, some mathematicians that were doing the uh, the, the advanced numbers. Uh, it, the odds of them coming back in that scenario, again, down 22 with 11 minutes to go against the second best defense in terms of adjusted defensive efficiency in the land in Cincinnati was uh, far greater than what New England accomplished in Super Bowl 51 against the Atlanta Falcons. And they're come from behind victory, wow. you know, largely in the fourth quarter. So it kind of puts it in perspective just how difficult and how, uh, you know, high that mountain was for Nevada to climb. But, you know, they, they've done this with like basically six bodies. You know, they, they're not deep, uh, and without a, their starting point guard and Lindsey Drew, who they lost uh, a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, it's credit to the Martin Twins, who were long and athletic and, and a matchup problem, Jordan Caroline, who I think plays with the highest RPM of any player in college basketball and has a matchup problem of his own because he can beat you inside and outside, and he's just so active around the basket, generating those second-chance opportunities, ripping down those defensive rebounds. Uh, and they're just so well-oiled offensively. This is a team that doesn't turn the ball over very rarely, and uh, you know they always make that extra pass or penetrate or pro, whether it's zone defense or getting around in man sets. Uh, and kissing it off the glass. So, uh, you know, a lot of people are writing off Nevada, and they love the Loyola-Chicago story, but I think it's going to come to an end for Loyola. I think Nevada's going to march on. And I think Nevada matches up really well with Kentucky, assuming Kentucky gets past Bruce Weber and K-State. So uh, that, uh, you know, upended, unpredictable region of the South is still going to write another Cinderella story, and it could be Nevada in the end in San Antonio. All right. It should be a great game between Loyola and Nevada. We'll get to some Big Ten talk in just a second, but uh, I want to get your perspective first on kind of a broader topic because I look at the bracket and I've looked at college basketball just at uh, at a distance these last couple of years, and I see teams, you know, Clemson, Texas Tech, A and M, Florida State, Auburn, Alabama, and I just look at it and scratch my head and wonder when did the football and basketball top twenty five switch and how how is this kind of <laughs> awakening in the SEC and the big like, some of the teams in the Big Twelve that you wouldn't expect. How has this happened? What's going on with uh, these non-traditional basketball schools rising up and taking over March Madness, really? Well, I mean, look, it's it's a matchup game, and it's a second season. It's a second lease on life. 
just getting into the tournament, it changes everything. It doesn't matter what seed number is attached to your team's name. It's a clean slate. And you just go out there and get hot at the right time. I mean, look at that Florida State team. It was limping into the postseason. Same with Clemson, really. Uh, both squads had, you know, very uh, big question marks. Uh, for Florida State, it was perimeter defense. Uh, it was just being consistent. Obviously, the offense was there. The athleticism, the front court was there. Uh, Phil Kofer is a match of problem in six stages. He could beat you inside and, and step beyond the arc and knock down some trays as well. Uh, but I thought defensively, Florida State didn't have the chops to do this. But they got a good draw, too. You know, you, you beat a Missouri team down Jordan Barnett. Uh, who got picked up for a DWI just, you know, days before the tournament. Uh, you have Michael Porter Jr. there, but, you know, him kind of entering the mix, it might have disrupted some of the chemistry that existed. So the Tigers were very vulnerable, and Florida State blew them out of the water. And then you face a Xavier team that, even though they were very good and very deserving as a number one seed, you know, winning the Big East, uh, there were some question marks there because that one three one zone, leaky uh, by comparison to last year, uh, they were great offensively, but when J.P. McCure went out uh, with about three and change to go in that game uh, due to disqualification, uh, that really think you know changed the entire narrative and gave Florida State that boost of confidence to complete the comeback, which they did. Uh, and then you look at Clemson, and man, what a what a beatdown against Auburn. And really, what's uh, shouldn't be understated uh, here too is they beat a really good New Mexico State team uh, that I picked to beat Clemson. Uh, I thought they had all the ingredients similar to Loyola Chicago to survive advance a couple of games. And Clemson handled business really from start to finish and then just obliterated Auburn. So uh, I think that Clemson team has got a really good shot at knocking off Kansas because they really get after it inside. You get Azubuke in foul trouble. It's, you know, they're emaciated up front are the Kansas Jayhawks. And the other key attribute here that Clemson possesses a pretty good team defensively along the perimeter. And for a team like Kansas that lives and dies by the three, if those shots, uh, shots aren't falling, I could see Clemson winning and maybe even convincingly so. All right, well, now we'll get to the Big Ten. And we saw two teams bow out after getting to the round of 32. Ohio State in a nice year. Uh, I think you have to feel good if you're an Ohio State fan about where that program's going. They weren't able to get by Gonzaga, but they had a couple of uh, pretty exciting games. And um, I think uh, – all things considered, you got to feel good, like I said, if you're yeah. an Ohio State fan. But Michigan State, on the other hand, they were entering the season one of the Big Ten favorites, probably the Big Ten favorite to, if anyone was going to win the national title, it was Sparty. And, you know, they had a solid season. They were Big Ten champs, which is obviously great. But when you kind of step back and look at their, their resume, they didn't really beat a whole lot of great teams. And then when they yeah. went into Syracuse in the round of 32, it was really ugly. They... 2-3 zone gave him fits, and it was one of Jim Beheim's less talented teams. So what happened with Michigan State? Why could they not crack that zone? And, you know, really, what, what do you make of, of what you saw Sunday? Yeah, I think uh, autometrist appointments skyrocketed uh, as a result of that game. <laughs> it, was, it was difficult to watch, man. My retina were burning, uh, you know, in the, in the waning moments of that, you know, they, they tried to probe the zone and for, you know, they had some success, but the shots weren't falling. I mean, they, they had wide open looks from outside and they simply were not going down. I mean, Miles Bridges, it took him an eternity to finally knock down a three. And, and honestly, when Cassius Winston hit that first three on the first possession of the second half, I said, Oh, here come the floodgates. They're going to go wide open. And, and Michigan State's going to run away with this. But, you know, credit to, to Syracuse and Jim Beheim 
yeah, they can't hit the broadside of a barn. You could argue this is the worst offensive team to ever reach the Sweet 16. And I can back it up with numbers. Uh, this is a team that ranks north of 300. Yes, yeah. effective field goal percentage, three-point percentage, and two-point percentage offense. They're atrocious. And that's putting it kindly on offense. But when you're, you know, 6'7", 7'2", 6'8", 6'9", you got, you know, the uh, the width of a condor and the wingspan, and, you know, you're, you're north and south and getting your hands up, it's hard to see the rim. It's hard to shoot over that. And I think it started to get into Michigan State's head, and that's what the zone does to you. And if, if you're not knocking down those shots, you're not probing, you know, right there at the key, the top of the key, uh, it can get extremely difficult, and it just gets tighter and tighter and tighter, and that's what happened in the end and why Syracuse prevailed. Yeah, and it's like Izzo decided at some point that he was going to go with McQuaid, Matt McQuaid and Ben Carter to kind of attack that zone. And those guys weren't hitting shots, and the right decisions were not being made even off the ball. And in the middle of the zone, where you really have to kind of break down that zone and cause it to collapse. And if you're going to make that decision, and then McQuaid and Carter don't hit shots, they're not really giving you much else anywhere else on the floor. Plus, you leave Jaron Jackson and Nick Ward on the bench. So I thought that was interesting, and obviously it backfired on them. Yeah, exactly, and it's it's just unfortunate. Um, you know, and that's that's the problem. And look, Syracuse has done this before. I mean, they were a double-digit seed and made the Final Four not long ago. So this is a team that once you get into a single elimination environment with that two-three zone, no matter how shoddy your offense is, it creates problems. I will say this. In the matchup against Duke, remember Duke beat him by 16 and Karen Indoor in late February. I, I think Duke will have a tremendous amount of success like Michigan State did in generating second-chance opportunities. But instead of not cashing in on those with Bagley and Wendell Carter, I think they will have a ton of success in that regard and then maybe kicking it out as well to Grayson Allen or Gary Trent Jr. Uh, I think Duke just has a, another level of talent that Michigan State did not that will ultimately eliminate Syracuse and have the Blue Devils marching on. And get that ugly style of basketball out of the tournament. I'm, I, I, I know it's kind of uh, unheard of to root for Duke if, if you're not a Duke fan, but I wouldn't be too sad about that 2-3 zone going away. That's just me. But we'll get <laughs> no, to, me neither. <laughs> we'll get to the uh, Big Ten teams now that are still alive. We got both of them taking on teams from Texas. Michigan's going against Texas A&M. Purdue's got Texas Tech. So we'll start with A&M. Give me the scouting report on Texas A&M and how does Michigan match up with them? Well, I will say this. Texas A&M played an extraordinary basketball game against North Carolina, a team that matched up extraordinarily well with the Tar Heels because of the size it possesses. Uh, you've got a kid in Tyler Davis at six foot ten, 265 pounds. He's a beast and, and a guy that can put it on the deck comfortably. Uh, really gets deep into the crease right around the basket in his position with his wide badonkadonk. And as a result, uh, it's an easy shot. It's a high percentage shot once he gets that kind of position. So it's going to be really critical, uh, I think, for, uh, for Michigan to try to body up. Mo Wagner's going to have to stay out of foul trouble uh, because uh, there's definitely going to be a size advantage with Tyler Davis uh, and Williams as well as also 6'10", and Morelos uh, is another 6'10 guy. And then you got Hogue at 6'9", who plays kind of like a Euro big. He, he likes to get his nose dirty in defensive rebounding, but can step the step out and hit the three at about a 38% clip. Gilder also right around 38 39% from distance as well. And those guys were draining shots like crazy against the Tar Heels. So, I, but I think it's a different animal defensively for A&M here. 
uh, you know, matching up against his Michigan D that is number three in the country in just the defensive efficiency. Uh, they really do a good job on switches. And, and, uh, I think this is a team that is going to pose some problems for AM because I don't think they're going to have that freedom of movement along the perimeter that they had against the Tar Heels and knocking down those three point shots. If you can shackle the arc and then focus your attention on containing Tyler Davis and Williams inside, then that team becomes very one-dimensional in a hurry and can bog down offensively. So uh, I, I think Michigan will prevail in the end. I have Michigan in my championship game, so a little bit of a foreshadow here. Uh, I'm going to sit to my guns on that. Uh, but this A&M team, if they're hitting their outside shots with that uh, uh, defensive rebounding ability inside and blasting you in the paint, they, they, nobody can beat them. Not even Duke, not even Villanova. But I don't think you're going to see the lightning strike twice and have them have the exact same flawlessly executed game plan as you saw against North Carolina. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Michigan being in your title game because I'd argue they've played the worst out of any Sweet 16 team. Oh, yet, totally. Yet they're in pretty good position to reach the Final Four. I mean, they match up pretty well with what lies ahead. I think, you know, I like their chances against A&M. Do you think that switch kind of flips for them? Because they haven't looked good so far. And the Montana game was was terrible to watch. And then without a Jordan Poole miracle at the end, they'd be going home. So, so what do you think they have to do to kind of turn it on here? Yeah, obvious rust. And, and maybe that was the accumulation of days off, uh, you know, going from the Big Ten tournament being so early and having 10 days off and coming in. You know, maybe uh, we're not giving enough credit to the defense of the Grizz in Montana. Uh, and Houston, we know, is a very gritty defensive team. So a lot of that's matchup-based. And, you know, this is going to be another defensive struggle as well because you look at A&M, you know, top five in the country, just a defensive efficiency. So, you know, it, it could be another low-scoring affair, probably going to be in the 60s. I think you're going to see more fluid basketball from Michigan. Uh, I think, you know, Wagner was struggling with, uh, you know, not getting enough touches and foul trouble in those first couple of games. I think Beeline's going to try to get him going early uh, to really enforce his will on a and because he's such a matchup problem, uh, given his size and ability to, to drain outside shots. And he's so quick off the dribble that if you could pull out a Tyler Davis or Williams or Morelos there, then you can, you know, open up the backdoor cut game to an Abdul Rahman or to a, a Charles Matthews, you know, some of these other guys on the periphery. So I think Wagner is going to be key, and I think you're going to see Beeline really attack this A&M defense early, specifically with him, to build up uh, the Berlin imports confidence and to make him a focal point in this game overall. Yeah, we've seen that extra gear they have. I mean, they've mowed through the competition at MSG. So if they turn that on, I, I agree with your – pick that they uh, have a good shot of reaching the Final Four in San Antonio. So we'll move on to Purdue now. They got Texas Tech. First things first, um, they got to take care of the Red Raiders, and they got to do it without Isaac Haas. So give me the scouting report on Texas Tech and how does Purdue square up against them? Well, Texas Tech is a, a terrific basketball team, and a team that you know kind of struggled down the stretch. Uh, they had a stretch in February. They dropped four consecutive games, and a lot of that had to do with Keenan Evans' health. Uh, Key Demons is the grease that really helps move the wheel offensively for this team. And he was in with a bum toe. Uh, he's healthy now. He's looked explosive. The, you know, distribution's back. Uh, you know, his confidence is soaring. The real matchup problem here for Purdue in my mind, and, and I think the key battle in this game, which could ultimately decide it, is going to be the battle between Vince Edwards and Zaire Smith. I'd expect Painter to assign Edwards a straight man coverage 
on Smith. But the problem with Smith is he's so multidimensional. Uh, he's a guy that in the last game, I mean, he's stuff the stat sheet. It was like 18, 9, and I think 7 dimes in that contest, that thriller against Florida. And he's a guy that can, again, beat you inside. Uh, he's a guy that can uh, step out and hit the mid-range jumper, the occasional three, shooting at 44.4% from downtown on the season. Uh, but his ability to, to share the rock and have that kind of vision and give it up, it's almost like having a, a point forward on the floor to complement your true point guard in Keenan Evans. And then you got Jared Culver there at 6'5", and Stevenson at 6'5". Uh, this is a matchup problem uh, because of the speed, uh, because of the smooth passing. And, and not only that, but Texas Tech also an outstanding defensive team in its own right. Uh, they're going to challenge shots. They're going to contest. Uh, it's it's going to be you know quite the, the slog, I think, for Purdue, especially down Isaac Haas. But, again, that key matchup, if you're a Boiler fan, is going to be Vincent Edwards keeping out of foul trouble, keeping him efficient on both ends, and trying to contain Zaire Smith. Yeah, and I know it, it sucks for Haas that he's out, and, and it sucks for Purdue with the injury. But is there any positives that can be kind of wrung out of, of the situation? Like, is him being out and Harms sliding in there, does it open up the offense a little bit for some more outside looks? Because I know when they when the Boilermakers struggled in February and they, they dropped those three games in a row, they kind of committed to just dumping it down to Haas and letting him put up double-digit shots a game yep. and, and trying to get buckets down there. So is there anything positive to be kind of taken from the situation that maybe Purdue can open up the offense a little bit and knock down some threes, and it could maybe have a little more potential to carry them to the Final Four. Yeah, you know, it's kind of used like a, an ancient warfare example here, the hoplite soldiers uh, back uh, in ancient uh, Greek times, um, and I believe the Romans took it on as well. There's that history the re- lesson coming in. Yeah, yeah, well, here's a history degree at work. So the hoplite, you know, the reason why they were so effective is because they were lightly armored. So they can move very nimbly around the battlefield. And, and I, in a way, Purdue is, is kind of taking on that hoplite persona in that, uh, you know, without Isaac Haas there in the lane, they're having to rely more on the guards and, and playing small ball. And, uh, you know, it was successful against Butler, uh, particularly in the second half. But the one thing that's really worried me most about Purdue, and it, it really kind of started with the Ohio State loss uh, inside Mackey back in February, is that, you know, they were up uh, double digits in that game. And I remember, I think it was Carson Edwards who got fouled on an and one from three. And I'm like, oh, this game's over. The way that Purdue defends, uh, you know, they're just going to bludgeon the Buckeyes to death. It's going to be all she wrote. And then all of a sudden, Katie Bates Diop goes nuts and, and Doc is just making key plays down the stretch. And, and uh, you know, Ohio State steals uh, a victory from the draws of defeat there inside Mackey. And you saw it again against Penn State. This is a team that just, and, and really against Butler too, they lack a killer instinct, right? They're not levying and landing that knockout blow, and that's concerning. And it seems like they, they crumble a little bit under some of the pressure or they get too complacent late in games, and you cannot do that against this veteran, savvy, very well uh, coached and disciplined Texas Tech team. If they, you know, if Purdue has the six, seven-point lead and they get complacent with five minutes to go, they're going to lose bottom line so they got to keep throwing haymakers you know from start to finish if they want to survive in advance with this smaller lineup so which big 10 guys amused you most uh this tournament jordan Poole or matt harms (laughs) 
Uh, they've both been uh, highly entertaining. Uh, you know, Poole's been terrific, uh, obviously overly uh, jubilant uh, after his shots, uh, you know, drilling it from distance. He's, he's been fun to, to watch. But, I mean, come on. Uh, Harms has got the, the Bieber hair going on. <laughs> You know, flipping around like crazy, like old school Justin Bieber, and uh, you know that's become kind of a, an internet sensation, a social media sensation. So, you know, Harms uh, probably, you know, you know, at the next level, where whether he's going to be playing in Europe or in the NBA down the road, uh, he's got uh, he's got some, you know, maybe an Aquanet uh, sponsorship or something in his future. So there'll, there'll be some goop out there, and some hair product that he can pitch down the road. So. Uh, he's doing himself a, a, a great service right now for his long-term profitability. Yeah, I was going to say, he's got to get some better product, someone some some hold. Like, the the hair is not staying in place <laughs> like it should be. Um, and then Jordan Poole, man, he's he's funny. Like, yeah. just kind of wandering around the, the bowels of MSG a few weeks ago, and Michigan would be kind of hanging out, waiting. This dude has a motor that just keeps going. Like, he's always talking, dancing, doing something goofy. And the way, you know, his smile is just kind of contagious that it, it, I think, you know, draws fans of other teams to him even. So I'm excited to watch those two for, you know, however long they have left, hopefully three more years at Big Ten schools. Um, before we wrap up, Brad, I want to get your overall tourney favorite now that uh, we've kind of sorted through the muck a little bit. I think Duke and Villanova got to be, you know, two of the, the odds on favorites to win just because they mowed through competition the first couple of rounds and, and they are uh, entering the tournament. They obviously were, were strong coming in. So give me your, your tourney favorites now, maybe one or two with a, a sleeper on the outside that you think has a chance to win it all. Yeah, full disclosure. So my final four before this uh, whole shindig began and, and you know, all the slash marks didn't appear on my virtual bracket – I had Arizona in the final four, uh, followed by Michigan, Duke, and Villanova. I got three of the four still alive, and I'm sticking to my guns on Villanova, Duke, and Michigan. Um, and then out of the south, I'm actually going to go with Nevada. And, and I know Chalk is Kentucky in that region. And, and, you know, this is not discounting John Calipari's team in any way, shape, or form. They're playing tremendous basketball, peak basketball at the most opportune time, a team that's averaging – North of 1.20 points per possession over the last month. They really defend you. They have the length and athleticism. Uh, Shea Gilgis Alexander has been a beast, but they've barely been tested, right? I mean, you play Buffalo, uh, a team that had, uh, you know, defensive question marks galore. Even entering the Arizona game, they got lightning hot and, and all of a sudden you survive in advance. And then Kentucky took advantage of that. And in the opening round matchup, you know, Davidson pushed them a little bit, but Davidson had shortcomings defensively. It really didn't match up well. With Kentucky's front line. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Kansas State. You hope that Dean Wade is going to be active because he's a difference maker at 6'10 because he's a matchup problem. Uh, again, a guy that's got a versatile game. Uh, but for me, out of that region, I know Kentucky's chalk, but I like Nevada. I think they're going to knock off Loyola. I think they match up well athletically with uh, the Wildcats. And uh, that's a team right now that's playing with house money, and appropriately so since they rep from Reno. So I think Nevada is not only the team that's going to come out of that South region, they're a sleeper to win the whole thing. All right, honorary member of the Wolfpack, Brad Evans. One more question, Brad, and it's an important one. i got to know, are you team crying kids on camera or anti-crying kids on camera? Because it's that time of year. <laughs> oh, man, I like, I'm team crying kids. I mean, it's emotional. I was that kid at that age, man. I, I was the kid weeping when uh, Illinois lost in 1989. 
I was the guy, well, I was an adult weeping when Illinois got hosed in the national title game in 2005 against North Carolina and their fake classes. You know, I, I've been down this path before, so I can empathize with the youth of America as they are experiencing this, and it's just going to make them tougher in the end or bitter fans in the end. So I, I don't mind the crying kids. I don't mind the emotional wives. The only thing I don't like, the crazy mascots. I don't like the Providence <laughs> Friar, for example. I still wake up in, in cold sweats at night. That one's scary. With the image in my head. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the, answer, the the crying kids thing for me, it's it's almost like it's like Jersey Shore. Like I when it was on, I knew it was bad for me. I knew it was killing brain cells, but I loved watching it. It's when I think it's when they keep going back to the crying kids, and they like the I'm like just thinking like, come on, like what is the producer doing? Like this is cruel and unusual punishment. The studies have yet to come out. I think on. What be oh, yeah, the what, long-term impact. What becoming yeah. a meme? Yeah, what does that do to your psyche? Becoming a meme, but uh, yeah. we'll have to wait for the results on those. But Brad Evans, um, a lot of fun having you on. I feel much smarter for having had you on and had, having this forty-five minute discussion. So I appreciate it, and we'll definitely have to get you back on again at some point in the future. Thanks for joining me. Hey, I appreciate it as well. Go Illini. And if you're really smart out there, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, hashtag fade the noise. Do the opposite of what I recommend, and chances are you'll win your second chance bracket or maybe your overall bracket as a whole. All right. Thanks, Brad. All right. Thanks a lot to Brad for joining me. A lot of fun talking to him. As I said at the top of the show, brings definitely a unique voice to uh, the, the Bracketology game, to the fantasy football game as well. I'm sure if you play fantasy, you've heard of Brad, and it's cool that he kind of turned his career into what it's become from a totally different career teaching at-risk youth in central Illinois. So uh, I'm glad to learn more about his story, and, and um, hopefully we'll have him on again. I'm sure we will at some point going forward. So with that, uh, enjoy the second weekend of the tournament. Uh, I'm not sure if we can top last weekend, but I'm sure some crazy moments will happen. And hopefully on the other side of this, we'll be talking to you, at least from my perspective, um, with Big Ten teams still in it, because I, I want to be able to, to you know, have this conversation stay relevant. It's going to be hard to spin that if no Big Ten teams are in the NCAA tournament anymore. So if we get uh, Purdue or Michigan in the Final Four, you already know we'll be covering it in depth on the podcast, and we'll be getting some relevant guests as well to weigh in. So we'll see you on the other side of this weekend of college hoops, another great weekend in store, and we'll see how the Boymakers and Wolverines fare. So thanks, as always, to Wes White for producing the show. Shout out to everyone for listening, for loyally listening, if you've been tuned in since the beginning. We're, almost, we're sneaking up on a year now. Um, we doing this about 11 months, so shout out to everyone who has uh, stuck with us. Shout out to the new listeners, too. And we'll talk to you next week here on the Take 10 Podcast.